Jim. And thanks to our praise band. They do a great job up here every week. Thank you. They lead us, they lead us in worship, and they put in a lot of time uh, making sure that everything is ready to go and that, the, uh, that they're familiar with the songs and all of that. And they put in a lot of time. And uh, thanks for doing In Christ Alone this morning, guys. I love that song. Uh, it speaks to me every time I sing it, and I love it. It's great theology. Um, you know, it's a more modern hymnic type song, but it's 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 fantastic, old school biblical theology, and I love it. So, anyway, um, this morning we're going to talk about Jesus and religion. Now, you may think, ah, big shocker, I'm at church, um, but I want to, <laughs> but I want to, I want to carefully distinguish the two that Jesus and religion are not the same thing, in other words. Uh, And a lot of people misunderstand, and they think that Christianity is, in fact, a religion. Um, But I want to assure you that properly understood, in fact, that Christianity is the furthest thing from being a religion. In fact, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, I'm going to steal my own thunder right now, okay? If you get nothing else out of this sermon, get this. Jesus hates religion, but he loves sinners, okay? You get nothing else out of what I'm going to say today, get that in in, in six-foot lights. Jesus hates religion, but he loves sinners. Now, before I go any further, let me be clear on what I mean, okay? Religion, let me define it for you, is any attempt by human beings to, by adherence to a set of rules and regulations, gain the favor and approval of God. Okay? Christianity, let me repeat that. Religion is any attempt by human beings to, by adherence to a set of rules and regulations, gain the favor of God. And if you go around the world, there's all kinds of belief systems that classify as a religion. Now, if you've got... Uh, if you're if you're Islamic, if you're a Muslim, uh, you believe if you're if you're devout anyway in adherence to the to the five pillars, things like zakat, which is the uh, the giving of alms uh, equal to one and a half percent of your income every year. Really generous. Um, <laughs> um, or the pilgrimage to Mecca, or you know these things. You have these five things that you have to do to be a devout Muslim, and uh, fulfill everything that Allah would require of you before you stand before him. If you're a Buddhist, they have the Noble Eightfold Path, okay, which leads to enlightenment. And you, you do these various things, and, and eventually you become enlightened, and you pass into nothingness, also known as nirvana. All right? Which, boy, that's great. You know? get absorbed into the atmosphere, and parts of you become part of a cockroach, I guess. But, you know, I mean, that's great. But anyway, uh, if you're an animist, what you do is you offer sacrifices to the various deities, you know, the storm god, the tree god, the river god, the crops god, etc. And by offering these sacrifices, you make the gods happy, uh, and they do what you want, right? Uh, whether, and it's and it, that's true of all animistic beliefs, whether you're talking voodoo uh, down in Haiti or 
uh, Umbanda in Brazil or uh, Native African religion all over Africa. Um, you know, whatever you're talking about, animism, that's what you do. Um, you know, certain fundamentalist strains of Christianity uh, distort the grace of God because what they do is they add to the Scriptures all kinds of other things the Scripture says nothing about. And so they say that if you're a Christian, you can't, as a woman, wear makeup, you can't wear pants, you know, you have to have your hair a certain length, um, these kinds of things, right? If you're, a, if you're a guy, it's things like, well, you can't smoke and you can't chew, can't go with girls who do, um, you know, these kinds of stuff, okay? Uh, you know, we get all, you know, or, or it even gets to, into things like, you know, you can't have any caffeine, you can't, you can't uh, use birth control, you can't do whatever, okay? And they get all these extra biblical rules that they add on to, and even though uh, a lot of times fundamentalist Christians have the gospel squared away, they distort the grace of God by the addition of all of these rules. And in contrast to all of this stuff, all of the religious systems that are out there in the world, Jesus, and being a follower of Jesus, begins this way, with an admission before him that there is nothing, not one thing, that you can do or refrain from doing, as the case might be, that is going to get you one iota closer to being in favor with God. That favor with God comes solely and completely and unalterably and inexpressibly by grace and grace alone. We are a Reformation church, right? We believe that a person comes to God by faith alone, uh, through God's grace alone, in Christ alone, right? And that, and that all religious systems compared to that are a tricycle next to a Mercedes, okay? The two are completely different. Now, they both have to do with God in some sense. You know, just like a tricycle and a Mercedes S-Class are um, both modes of transportation, <laughs> okay, but there's a world of difference between the two, amen? All right, now Jesus is going to tell us how much he hates religion in chapter 3, I mean chapter 2 of uh, Mark. We're going to look at the whole chapter, okay? So follow along as I read. A few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turned to the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. 
And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick have not come to call the righteous sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as he is with them. But the time has come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. <coughs> one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what Jesus did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the priest, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this, this chapter uh, begins with the healing of the paralytic. There in the beginning of uh, chapter 2, uh, Jesus is back in Capernaum. He had been traveling at the end of chapter 1. He had been traveling uh, through the whole region of Galilee, widening the, the circle of his ministry. And now he's back in Capernaum, which is one of the central cities of Galilee. It's about 10,000 people in the town. Um, and he's back... And uh, and after he's cast out demons and preached and everything all, all over everywhere, his reputation has grown, and lots of people want to come see Jesus. And so he is in this house, and it is standing room only. In fact, it is standing room only outside the door. And and people are wanted in there. I mean, it's a fire marshal nightmare right there at this house. And and they can't get people can't get to Jesus. <clears throat> but along come some, some, some guys with their friend who's paralyzed. Uh, I don't know if he's a paraplegic or a quadriplegic or whatever, but in any case, he can't walk. And so they're carrying him on this mat that he lays on. And they've got to get him to Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They know who he is. They're pretty sure. Because no one ever did the kind of things that Jesus is doing without being God. And so they're going to get him to Jesus one way or another. And they can't get to him, and they can't get to him. And so 
uh, houses in those days had stairs a lot of times that went up to the roof, and it was kind of like if you've ever been to the beach, uh, and you see these beach houses, and they, a lot of them have decks up on the roof. Well, in Middle Eastern houses, what they have is a flat roof with a, a parapet, a, a rail, you know, made out of dirt that goes around it about yay high. And you can kind of stand up there, and um, and it's, you know, it's a nicer view, and you get up away from the dust and the mud and the manure of the street and all that. And, and you, a lot of times they even put shelters and so forth up on top of the roof of the house. Um, and, you know, at night it'd be, you'd get the breeze and it'd be a little cooler and it's kind of nice, right? So you had these stairs or a ladder or something that a lot of times went up to the, to the roof so you could get up there. Well, these guys haul their buddy up there and they're going to get to Jesus. So the only way through is through the, through the roof. So they start digging. Now, I can't imagine doing this. Can any of you imagine doing this? We got to get inside this house. So, you know, you and your buddies start going up on the roof of the house and tearing off shingles. <laughs> okay. And then, and then when you get to the solid surface, you go, bring me the sledgehammer. <laughs> or bring the shovel. We're digging through. Okay. These guys are doing that. Now, does that take a degree of social boldness? I'd say so, right? Uh, you know, none of us would ever advise our children to do this kind of thing. This is in the category of major social faux pas, digging through somebody's roof while they're in the house, right? And, you know, as you can imagine, it's, a, it, you know, it's an adobe-type construction house, so there's dust and dirt and sticks and stuff falling down through the hole while they're chopping a hole to see Jesus, you know? Well, I think he's about in the middle of the room, so you know, just have at it. And we're going to lower him down onto this mat. Can you imagine the scene, how funny this is? And people are looking around, and there's, you know, pieces, chunks of ceiling falling down on them and whatever. It's a packed, tight room. And they're lowering him down in front of Jesus. Now, after this has all happened, what's going on? Every eyeball is on Jesus. Because... They're all, I'm sure, curious of what Jesus is going to have to say about this, right? They finally get him laid down there in front of Jesus, and he looks at the guy, and it says that he saw their faith, which is interesting. Because Jesus knows that, in other words, they're not doing this simply because they want their buddy healed. They're doing this because they know who I am. And because they know who I am, they know that I'll heal him. And he says something very interesting. This guy's problem is really obvious, right? He's crippled. If he, if he weren't crippled, he could have walked in and just kind of fought his way to the front, right? But he's crippled. He can't get there. And his buddies have had to carry him. And then they've had to carve a hole in the roof to get him to Jesus. They've gone through major effort to get him here. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, Wow, bummer that you're crippled. He doesn't say that. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's meant to be shocking. Jesus has never done that prior to now. But remember, the theme of Mark's book is in the very first verse, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not his last name. It's a title, Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And he's trying to, Mark is trying with his gospel to prove that initial statement. He gave you the thesis statement at the beginning. He's going to back it up for the rest of the book. Your, your sins are forgiven? I'm sure a lot of people were thinking, well, that's interesting, first of all, because only God can do that. In fact, it says that the teachers of the law thought that. But, I mean, looking at the guy, okay, he's forgiven, that's good, but, you know, he can't walk, dude. Have you noticed? And I think Jesus does that for a very specific reason. He wants to teach us this, and this is my first point on your outline. Uh, the worst problem that we have isn't our circumstances, but our sin. The worst problem that, that I have, as an example, I'm a Crohn's patient, have been since I was 16 years old. Okay? I've taken medication every day uh, to uh, keep body and soul together and all that. Okay, uh, But that's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is my sin, of which... Being sick is only a symptom, right? My biggest problem is my sin. And so Jesus deals with the guy's biggest problem, the one that's not obvious to the crowd watching first. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately the religious people all have a problem with what Jesus is doing. And they start mm, to themselves, okay? Who does this guy think he is? Why is he talking like that? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is thinking, exactly. You're exactly right. And so he addresses their thoughts. This is one of the other things that's interesting about Jesus. Is a lot of times people think things that they don't say. And Jesus goes ahead and answers the thought. Which is a little spooky. Okay. If you're having conversation with Jesus and you you have this thought in the back of your mind and Jesus says, so why are you thinking that? And he, and I mean, can you imagine the expression on their faces? He says, why are you thinking these things? And then he says, I'm going to give you proof. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Well, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Anybody can do that. Religious uh, leaders of various stripes all over the world say that to people all the time. And it has no bearing on their forgiveness before God, right? I mean, you can go, you can say to somebody, yeah, you, God forgives you. Really? How do you know? Okay? Uh, Jesus says, let me offer you some proof that I can forgive sin. And he says to the man, take up your mat and walk. And the guy gets up his takes up stands up now normally you know if you haven't walked in a while your muscles atrophy and all this kind of thing right this guy's paralyzed so evidently his muscles are all healed they're all all strengthened and he's able to cruise out of there with his mat over his shoulder and i i gotta imagine the scene here all of a sudden this room that's packed tight is parts like the red sea and this guy cruises out and ever it's a, the text says what I mean it kind of understates it. Everybody was amazed. <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs> okay, uh, everybody's amazed, and they gave praise to God, saying, "We've never seen anything like this." Did that shut the Pharisees and the teachers of the law up? 
Well, not quite. But it should have. Because who has power to forgive sin? Well, only God does. Who has power to make the lame walk? Only God does. So conclusion would be, this guy must be God, right? But that's not what they conclude. Uh, and don't be, and by the way, they're shocked at the wrong thing. The Pharisees, they're shocked at the wrong thing. And I don't want us to be shocked at the wrong thing as we read this. Don't be amazed that Jesus can forgive sin. Be amazed that he does forgive sin. Okay? Because if Jesus is God, then he is holy, and he has a standard of justice which is absolute. And by his absolute standard, all of us stand condemned. So don't be amazed that Jesus can forgive this guy's sin, but that he does. And more importantly, that he forgives you and I. Don't be shocked by the wrong thing, okay? Um, verse 13 to 17, we're getting another scene where religious people come to Jesus. Uh, these guys are the teachers of the law that are Pharisees. Now, that's a smaller group. Uh, there's about 6,000 Pharisees out of a, pop a worldwide population of about a million Jews uh, in, in Jesus' day. And so this is a small group. The Pharisees are the ones who considered themselves to be the pure ones. They are the ones who would do things like this. Uh, how many of you ladies know what the spice cumin looks like? Okay. Or parsley. You know that? Okay. They would take and count all of the flecks of that stuff that they would have. And then they would um, separate out 10% of the flecks and give those to God. Now, is that extreme? I'm like, get a balance, you know, get a scale and measure this stuff by weight. That'd be easier. They would count the flecks of stuff. Now, that's, you're on the extreme end of uh, legalistic righteousness at that point, right? But these people come to Jesus, and they say, and they would fast, by the way, at least once a week, one day a week, every week they would fast. They were religious people. They were good-looking. In fact, within Judaism, uh, Orthodox Judaism stands in a line theologically in direct descent from the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Uh, these are religious people. They're admirable folks. They're pious. They're uh, as externally holy as it is possible for a human being to be. These are people who knew God's word so well that you could quote a line from a particular spot in the scroll and they could tell you everything else from there down in the book. They are people who are extremely religious. They come to Jesus and they say, look, John's disciples fast and our disciples fast. How come your disciples don't fast? And Jesus gives a very interesting answer. He, he identifies himself as being like the groom at a wedding. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. I love weddings. I think weddings are great fun. Okay? Almost everybody has a magnificent wedding. Okay? Would that everybody who had a great wedding had a great marriage that followed. All right? But weddings are... 
great fun, right? There's, there's, there's food, there's cake, there's punch, there, everybody's dressed nice. Sometimes there's dancing, you know? Sometimes there's wine and a big meal, and they're, a great, they're great fun, right? I mean, you know, some, some of them even get out of hand on the level of fun that they have, right? Um, you know, cops get called and whatnot, right? Uh, but, um, but weddings can be great fun. Weddings are great fun to do as a pastor. I love doing weddings. Love doing premarital counseling. That's always fun. Um, and they're great fun to go to because everybody, for the most part, is in a good mood. And, they, and you know, family conflicts, a lot of times, at least for the day, get put aside. And they're great fun. And as long as the one thing that is true is as long as the bride and groom are there, the party's going. Right? They might be the last people to leave. <laughs> but the party is still going as long as the bride and groom are there. And Jesus says, look, I'm the groom at the wedding. God is doing something brand new. Just like a bride and a groom make a brand new relationship, I'm doing something brand new. And as long as I'm here, the party has started. Okay, now that is an interesting thing. Oh, I skipped a section here. I skipped a really important section, actually. Jesus is having <laughs> Jesus is having dinner with some with some tax collectors and some sinners, and the religious people come and they ask about these guys. And Jesus says, "It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners." And that's an interesting response. Jesus doesn't identify himself with the religious people, but with the sinners, with the prostitutes and the gamblers and the adulterers and the tax cheaters. Because what a tax collector was was somebody who was Jewish who worked for the Roman government. And the Roman government said, look, you can collect as much tax as you want, but you have to give us this much every year. Now, how much abuse do you think there would be if the IRS sent out tax collectors and said, now, you have to collect from this town of Chillicothe X and so million dollars and send it to us. But whatever you collect up, you know, apart from our share, we don't care. So, in other words, if the, if the amount you have to send in is $2 million, if you collect 10, huh, big deal. The other eight is yours. So it was a system that was ripe for abuse, and people hated the tax man. Because he impoverished everybody in the name of paying off the Roman government, who they also hated. And Jesus is picking these people to hang out with and to have his parties. And Jesus says, it's only the sinners that can follow me. And that's a really interesting response. Because a lot of people who are religious and who are into religion think that the more righteous you are, the more, closest, the, the more close you are to God. Jesus says a lot of times the more religious you are, the further away you are from God. Because you don't recognize that you're a sinner who needs, who needs him. Only sinners can follow Jesus. Now, let's go back to the wedding. All right? Um, a lot of people think, a lot of uh, particularly Folks that are real religious think that celebration is somehow a sinful thing. That it's wrong to have a good time. That, and so therefore, you should be you know, gritting your teeth to glory. 
right? We're going to get through this, right? We're going to follow Jesus, you know? And they just kind of grunt and groan and moan their way through life, right? Jesus says that following him is supposed to be joyful, just like a wedding. And since Jesus is full of joy, since Jesus is joy-filled, guess what? So should we be. So should his followers be. Jesus coming is a unique point in history, bottom line. And because of that, it's meant to be a time full of joy, like a party. He says, after I'm gone, then they can fast. But right now, let's party. Bring the turkey, (laughs) you know. I mean, and a Jewish wedding, by the way, you know, this is not just an ordinary party. A Jewish wedding is some like some combination of Christmas, Thanksgiving, and New Year's that lasts for seven days. I mean, it's a party. Have you ever had a party that was so good you didn't go home for a week? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is a Jewish wedding. <laughs> okay. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom at a wedding. And it's time to celebrate. So let's party. Okay. Uh, Celebration isn't sinful, you know, despite what a lot of uh, religious people portray. You know, the old cynic H.L. Mencken said that a Puritan is someone who who lives in fear that somebody somewhere is having a good time. (laughs) Right? Now, I think Mencken was a little bit unjust to the historical Puritans. All right? Or more than a little. But you can understand what he meant by the way some religious people act, and even the way some Christians act. It's not wrong to celebrate. In fact, it's good. Okay? Um, Now, last thing here, last section of this, um, verse 23 to 27. I'll try not to skip anymore. All right? I got too excited and just went to preaching. All right. Um, In the last section here, Jesus... um, is going to communicate the lesson that people matter more than policy. Uh, his disciples are, it's the Sabbath, and pe- his disciples are walking down through the grain fields. Now, this involves some matters of Jewish law. If you were a poor person, what you were allowed to do, uh, and we, we saw this a little bit with Ruth, you were allowed to gather grain out of other people's fields. And you weren't allowed to take a sickle, and cut grain out of their field, unless they allowed that. But you could, you know, walk through the fields outside of town, uh, and as you walked, you could pick some and eat it. That was legitimate within the law, okay? But in order to eat it, you had to take the head of grain, and then you put it in your hand, and you'd rub it, and it would separate the kernels of grain from the chaff. And the Pharisees saw the disciples doing this. It's the Sabbath. They're hungry. I mean, Jesus has a ministry that involves leading a bunch of guys around where they, none of them live, where none of them have a place to stay, and so therefore they're dependent on the kindness of strangers, essentially. They have a place to live and something to eat, so they're hungry. And they're walking along, and they're doing this. And then they've got the little handful of wheat or barley or whatever in their hand, and they put it in their mouth and eat it. And the Pharisees are looking at it and saying, the law says you cannot work on the Sabbath, and what you're doing is threshing. 
You're threshing grain. Okay? Now, did the law say you couldn't do what they were doing? No. Did the law say that you couldn't feed yourself on the Sabbath? No. But what the Pharisees sought to do, and, and initially this started out of good motives, and they actually describe it this way. They would say that what we're doing with our traditions of interpreting the law, because the law was not that specific. The law said, don't work on the Sabbath. Okay. Well, the tendency of someone who is religious is to fill in what God left broad and to say, well, we need to define what work constitutes. So they had defined how far you could go on a, um, on a uh, journey um, uh, by foot, how, mu- how, far you could t- how far you could ride your animal. Now, the law says none of your animals are to do any work on the Sabbath. And they said, well, you can ride your animal up to this far, and that's not work. That's not working your animal. But if you use a stick to make it, make it go or, you know, put the heels to it, um, then you're laying a burden on it, and then it's work. And so you can't do that. They had all these rules, and they said, what we're doing is we're building a fence around the law. That way we keep the law itself, but then if somebody, you know, breaks through the fence, well, then they haven't actually broken the law, but they've just broken one of our traditions, which is kind of outside the boundaries of the law. But over time, what happened was the Pharisees especially started to equate and then to elevate the traditions about what the law said over and above the law itself. And so they come to Jesus all offended, and they say, How come your disciples are working on the Sabbath, Jesus? Don't your disciples keep the law, in other words? Because what they were doing was they were looking for a way to discredit Jesus, and if they could show that his disciples were unrighteous people... They could discredit him. How come your disciples are working? And Jesus says, oh, really? You think that's a big deal? Haven't you read what David did? <coughs> David, when he was fleeing from Saul, he went to the, uh, this village where Abathar, the high priest, was outside of, um, uh, where was that? Jim would know. But in any case, they were in a little town outside of where Saul's, um, king, uh, where Saul's palace was. And David ran there. And he said, you know, I've got no food. I've got no weapons. Uh, can you help me? And Abathar says, well, I've got Goliath's sword. You want that one? Yeah, give me that one. <laughs> That'll work. And he says, we don't have anything to eat. And he says, well, all we have is the consecrated bread, and only the priests can eat that. But he went ahead and gave it to David anyway. (coughs) And the reason he did was this, that the consecrated bread was there to care for the needs of people. And if it wasn't going to be eaten by the priests, then it had to be thrown out. And so Abathar gives it to him. And said, this is for the meeting of the needs of people. And I know you're not a priest. According to the law, you're not supposed to do this. But you're in need. And Jesus draws the parallel back, in other words, with himself. And he does this more by inference than direct statement. He's saying about himself, I'm a greater king than David. And if David could do it with the priest's bread, surely I can do it with that which isn't bread. Right, And then beyond that, 
uh, if David's followers, who, let's be honest, were a bunch of thugs in the beginning, <laughs> it's okay for them to do this, then it's okay for my disciples to do this. And then he says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, you've totally misinterpreted the reason God gave you the regulations about the Sabbath to begin with. God gave you the Sabbath as a gift. People's natural tendency a lot of times is not uh, to incorporate a lot of margin into their life. And most of us run at about 120, about 6,000 RPMs, and then we kind of, you know, we have our first heart attack. And then we go, huh, maybe I, I was going a little hard there. I need to build more margin into my life. And God knows that about us as people. In our striving and in our activity, that a lot of times we don't take time to rest and we don't take time to worship God. And so God said to his people, I'm going to give you a day and I'm going to make you rest and take time to worship God. But he gave it to them not as a, not as a restriction, but as a gift. And Jesus is saying, look, you guys are all about emphasizing the restriction and you're missing the gift. And you're condemning people who eat when they're hungry. And you'd rather that they starve than that they break your tradition. What's wrong with you? you care more about rules than about people. And rules minus relationships always produces rebellion. That's my last two points here under your outline. Rules minus relationship always produces rebellion. These people had their relationship, they had, they had their rules, but they subtracted out of it their relationship with God, and so therefore they were in rebellion against him. And ascetic rebellion is just as sinful as lawless rebellion, and they didn't know that, but it is. You know, when you're saying, I'm going to do, and I'm going to do all these things and not do all these things, then you're an ascetic. But that form of rebellion is just as bad as the kind where you say, I'm going to blow my hair back and do whatever I want. Uh, Merry-go-round only takes one trip, <laughs> okay? Ascetic rebellion is just as much rebellion, and you're just as far away from God. Um, running short on time, but just a couple questions to ask as we, as we close. Uh, we've got a few more things we need to do with our service. Uh, first question, have you become a grumpy Christian? That is a contradiction in terms, by the way, okay? That is an oxymoron. Uh, have you replaced your relationship with God with rules? Sometimes rules can be a substitute for a relationship with God, not a means to get closer to Him. It's a delicate line to walk between, I want to do this because God's Word says, and I want to please God. To, I want to do this because it's right, not because I want to please God. You've got to walk that line carefully. Um, last thing, God forgives us when we confess. Is there anything you need to confess this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us that in spite of our sin, over the top of our sin, 
you lay your mercy. That you forgive us and you love us. And that when we admit to you, Father, I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you by my own rebellion. You made the way through Jesus to come to you anyway. And to be regarded not as a sinner but as holy. And to be adopted as your child. Father, we thank you for your marvelous grace. And we ask that if there's anyone here who has something they need to confess before you, that they would confess today and find healing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.